In the heart of the state of the art, at the dawn of the next stage in entertainment, you found no proscenium. Indeed, found no proscenium, the voice of everything immersive. I'm your host, Noah Nelson, and welcome to episode 372, our end of 2022 special. This week on the show, you've got two mighty segments featuring members of the senior staff of NoPro, arts editor Laura Hess, senior editor Leah Davis, LA Reviews editor Kevin Gossett, and East Coast curator-at-large Blake Weil all join us in segment one. And then London curator Shelley Snyder and Chicago curator Patrick McLean join us for part two. And we go into it all over the place uh, here wrapping up 2022. And yes, if you don't know, there is an explicit tag on this one because uh, uh, we do a little cursing on in the second part. For Shelly says and then I say something, and you know, I just once once it's done, it's done. Explicit it is. Only a few curses, but you gotta put it in there. All right. Uh, and that also means that yeah, I'm in I'm in all the segments too. All of that is gonna be coming up. All of it's coming up. Uh, but first, right now, that public auction of two tickets to Unique Trapman O'Brien's much lauded the telelibrary, that uh, you know, the thing that won, you know, indicate awards. Uh, the thing, the lovely experience that won Indicate Awards. I really liked it. I seriously do. The Telelibrary, a favorite thing that happened in, in 2020 for me. Uh, it's been running. It's been running that, you know, for a while now. And the tickets, they're always impossible to get, but we've still got two up in the public auction right now. That's going to be wrapping up this Thursday. These tickets, like I mentioned, always incredibly hard to come by, and Unique is pledging 100% of the proceeds on these sales to us at NoPro. And if you're listening last week, you know, uh, I got to buy a refrigerator. Uh, the auction ends. We need that money. The auction ends uh, at noon Pacific this Thursday. That's the 22nd. Uh, the top two bids are going to each take home one ticket for shows that will take place in mid-January. As I record this, the top two bids are $100 and $65. So if you've been dying to catch the library or desperate to go back, or there's somebody you know who's dying and desperate to go back, and it's Christmas, uh, this is the time to go get it. Um, there you go. All right. Um, also, of course, if you are a backer of NoPro, uh, you can go through the Patreon and see there's some discounts running around. Uh, we've got uh, discounts still open to Rumble in the Jungle rematch in London. And that's all, you can find all that in the backer exclusive part of the Patreon feed. We are up to 391 Patreon backers right now, just nine shy of the 400 mark. Oh, I really want to get there this year. Uh, that's thanks to our latest backers, Jacob Pinholzer and Mark Chu, and our latest sustaining backers, the Ministry of Peculiarities. Thank you for coming in, guys. Uh, was absolutely floored when i saw uh saw that you jumped in um we are starting to gather steam towards our next major milestone of 3k a month uh which which i really need to hit um <laughs> i did the math 
don't even need the money. It's life, man. It, it runs on money. I wish it didn't, uh, but it does. The ministry did bring us a Christmas miracle and have, have lit the way and we, we can start working deeper into the year. Uh, but we do want to try and get those last nine followers for the year. Hitting 400 this week in particular would be awesome. So we're looking for nine people. That's a lot. And I'm not out there like banging the drum on social media. But, you know, if you can, jump in and back us at patreon.com slash no Help us at that 400. If you're already a backer, uh, reviews on iTunes or your podcatcher of choice help spread the word. And look, a bunch of you have been helping to spread around the best of moments and shows that were released this month that will also be here in the show notes. Thank you so much for that. It really helps. Like, no joke. I'm seeing folks drop it around, and I see it on Insta and LinkedIn and Facebook, and it just it it, it gives me strength to keep going right? To see that happening. But also it means we're reaching out to new people who are like, oh, wow, I didn't know there was a thing that did that. And then they, next thing you know, uh, they're a fan of your local indie immersive. All right. Um, one of the places you can do that also now is at Mastodon, uh, because people are fleeing Twitter. We now have no proscenium at mastodon.social that's over there. And we're looking to reconnect the immersive community. So, uh, if there are immersive creators who, you know, who are on Mastodon, Tell us about them so we can follow them. Also, folks who are covering different aspects of immersive, uh, look for the, the toots. Oh, boy. Look for the toots, Mastodon. Yeah, man. Um, yeah, toots, tweets. We'll get used to it. Uh, oh, yeah, and Hive's back up. We're also on Hive. Uh, one last thing before we get into it. As always, big thanks to our sustaining backers, Samuel Mystery, Chris Woolman, Samantha Davidson, Eric Shamlin, Elaine, Jay Bushman, Jerome Joseph Gentes, Tom Leonetti McGuire, Winthorne, Ryan, David Bassick, Richard Ayers, Lonnie Hanson, Sidney Guillory, The Ministry of Peculiarities, and Jan Budman. Let's do this. Let's get into this episode. Well, as we promised at the top of the show, it is the end of the year 2022 podcast. And for around one, and we're calling the shot this time, I've got Leah, Kevin, Blake, and Laura. I will have them all introduce themselves in that order in a second. You're watching the show be created uh, on a metatextual level right in front of you. Uh, so uh, since it's been a while, everybody on the crew, uh, like I just said, in that order, uh, give a give a hey howdy and where you're hailing from right now. <laughs> hey howdy, partners. This is uh, Leah Davis. I'm the New England correspondent in snowy Providence, Rhode Island. Hey there, I'm Kevin Gossett, the LA Reviews Editor. Um, I'm in LA where it is unusually cold. Hi everyone, this is Blake Weil, the East Coast Curator at Large, coming to you from chilly Philadelphia. Hi, this is Laura Hess. I'm the Arts Editor. Uh, I think it sounds like we're all cold. I'm also in Los Angeles. It is it is one of those times when CNN has said that actually the entire country is having a winter storm. All Americans right now are are bound together in a bad winter storm. So it, it's it is indeed cold. Um, and 
hailing from our frostiest point, I think probably is Leah, who has sort of our thesis question for the group. Uh, we had quite the lively discussion before we started rolling, uh, and it was all based on some stuff that's kicking around your head there. So take it away, Leah. You got it. Uh, I want to start out, though, by saying that I, I really thought about saying senior editor, but guys, I was just so pleased to have remembered the word for correspondent that I, I stuck with it. Um, so I'll update my title next time I'm introducing myself. <laughs> but, but all right. Here's what I'm thinking. My word for immersive for 2022 is thoughtful. And I came to this because um, I was really thinking about where we were in 2020 and how we had got this proliferation of immersive just across the board. Everywhere you looked, you were seeing things tagged as immersive entertainment. And it got to the point where there was a lot of immersive for immersive sakes going on. And you could go to a show and it was extremely hit or miss about whether or not this was actually going to, to be a satisfying experience, or if it was even going to fit the bill as, as technically immersive. Um, clearly, we got to the pandemic and the restrictions imposed by lockdown and remote uh, connection created some really interesting art. It also stopped in-person entertainment for a while. So I think this, this creative restriction um, paired with a little extra time gave us, gave creators and, and audience members room to really think about what immersive was for and what we wanted out of it and how it connected us. And what we're starting to see in 2022, what we have been seeing is a return to, to real life shows, but the stuff that's coming out has a much higher bar. Um, and I mean that around quality content, uh, just general, general thoughtfulness of production, um, the stuff that we're seeing tends to be <laughs> better and uh, the stuff that we're choosing to see. I, I think audience members are also being very thoughtful about where we are spending our time and attention. So, so that's my thesis, thoughtful 2022. Um, glad to be here with you guys to talk about it. So I don't want to, to throw shade at a show that I love. But oh boy, um, here we go. <laughs> no, but, but Eschaton during that like first early pandemic was exactly what we needed, and I think is exactly the kind of unthoughtful show that Leah is describing. That there was this sort of, you know, I, I don't think that the pandemic's forced creativity necessarily is the cause of things being more thoughtful. In fact, that I think a lot of that creativity resulted more in novelty, perhaps, that there was a push for let's reinvent the the play online because it will just feel very depressing and like television to watch a play over Zoom, but without, you know, recontextualizing the audience's role. But that never necessarily worked in every circumstance. But then I do agree, because this year I am seeing all experiential design. For the most part, there were, there were some clinkers. But in terms of casting the audience and in terms of its reason for being immersive, as opposed to just a direct play in person that purpose is kind of the central thoughtful element. Well, you know, I, I like that too. And I, I wonder if, I wonder if we would be here in 2022 um, with 
such thoughtful <laughs> casting of the audience. I, I like that. Um, without having had the pandemic and, and not just because the pandemic gave us space, but I think that it allowed for iteration to happen really, really quickly with relatively low production costs. So creators, even if they were throwing together shows that were, that were about revising and, and changing up the, the medium for the stuff that they were working on in real life and moving it remote had space to really quickly go through and find out what was working and what wasn't. And then just iterate and iterate over and over again in a way that you couldn't necessarily do in real life. Yeah. The, the, the restriction of not having to do brick and mortar, not having to do physical, let, let people play with some of the interaction models, let people maybe get a little comfortable with that in a way that, you know, the pressure of doing a, a live in-person show, you know, would literally wouldn't afford for them to do. I think there's also a lot of shows and a lot of experiences that were just, you know, sitting there iterating offline, sitting, sitting there waiting to, to launch themselves when they came back. Kevin, you were talking a little bit about this intentionality thing in your best of last week, uh, which for us was like 15 minutes ago. So I'm wondering, wondering about your take on this one, particularly in terms of, you know, the amount of work we see now uh, versus before. Yeah, so I think the stuff that I really was was drawn to, I, I'm kind of drawn to it every year, is the stuff that like feels really intentional in how like it structures the audience and the show and the story it's trying to tell and how it kind of blends all those uh, things together into a careful mix. Um, and so as I was, I think this, the stuff I saw this year was really good. I just realized I didn't see a lot of it when compared to last year even or even necessarily 2020, even though most of everything I saw in 2020 was virtual, it just seems like I there was a lot less work to go around, whether it was in LA and online and kind of the places I am or something else. I, I was trying to suss that out. I was like, I don't, was I just not interested in seeing stuff or was there just stuff I wasn't interested in seeing? And so I'm kind of in this like weird spot with immersive at this point um, as we hit the, the end of the year. And I, I hope there's more stuff next year. And I don't, I don't know if you and, and Laura have kind of felt similarly in LA or that's just like, a me thing. I mean, I think I think I've definitely felt you know obviously spooky season didn't have as much stuff compared to most years here in Los Angeles, right? Uh, and and what we did have was kind of you know a little little quieter, a little tidier. Um, you know, there was they you know, JFI did the Willows instead of instead of doing Creep, and you know Delusion was uh, you know I think sh- the shortest one they've done so far from from what people have, have told told me um and we didn't have you know dark harbor's long gone and 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 some of the some of the other stuff that's usually around just just isn't there anymore um you know so there's there's that dimension of it and and i think there's also just been a very weird year when it comes to you know well is it safe to do a show do people really want to go out like you know we were talking about dragon show and like they ran at the top of the year and then i think they they ran again like in late summer into the into september and you know people people seem to be like reluctant to go out at points and then other times they were raring to go and i think everyone's just trying to figure out how is this supposed to work um and and none of the models business-wise are necessarily working the way they were except there's also these big ticket shows as it were they're these big ip things that are happening so you've got Bridgerton running around, you know, and that's, that's Fever and Netflix. And you've got Stranger Things experience and that's 
Fever and Netflix. And, and I think these have really created a, a different dynamic um, in terms of what the market it, it's possible to do. And a lot of that stuff is launching outside of LA. Like Stranger Things finally came here like after spooky season, after it had been in San Francisco. And they've got an East Coast tour going as well. Gone from New York, it's going down to Atlanta. Um, uh, there's, there's, they're supposed to open a third one, uh, you know, that's also going to bounce around. So they're going to have these three North American tour touring units bouncing around the country, and and that's like exposing a lot more folks. But it isn't necessarily doing things here in in the LA hub quite in the same way. Um, Laura, I know you've been given a lot of thought. Uh, particularly to like sort of what that scale of work is is doing to the overall dynamic. Yeah, I love that work. Um, I mean, I think, you know, I, I say that. And of course, the, the caveat is I love that work when it is really thoughtfully done. And I do think uh, it, I, I'm thrilled to be able to say I loved Bridgerton. Uh, I know Arcane was last year, but I think Arcane, Bridgerton, I just went to Stranger Things. I think these are exceptional productions. And they're exceptional because they are so thoughtfully crafted. There's money there. Sure, these are big productions. Uh, this is not a DIY situation. But it's not just throwing money at the wall. It's not just trying to sort of throw everything together, a hope that it works for everybody. It is so thoughtfully crafted and they're pulling from these different genres. Uh, they're pulling different methodologies from immersive theater, uh, from escape rooms, um, and they're putting it all together in this fantastic mix that is, uh, you know, theme parks. I mean, I was recently rereading Leah's review of the Stranger Things experience because she had gotten to do it in New York months ago, and having just done it was looking at the review and um, I just, <laughs> I agree with everything that Leah said. So if you haven't read that review, please go read it. Um, and I think that this kind of work is, this is what we should be striving for in terms of, I'm a huge proponent of uh, the cross-pollination and breaking down silos. And I don't think that we should be looking at things of like, well, that's, you know, experiential marketing, uh, I don't really like that. I don't like this kind of promotional stuff. Maybe it's just going to be um, a selfie palace, you know, kind of step and repeat. It's going to feel like it's just all about the the gift shop. This is so well crafted that you really do feel like you're in the story. Um, and the ways in which the kind of infrastructure falls away, specifically with Stranger Things, is so impressive. So I love this work when it's done really, really well. And I think the main reason around that is that it's more of the hybrid. It's really, these are great examples of pulling best in class methodologies from the different genres. And, now, and I want to, I want to point you <laughs> We've all got things to say. <laughs> well, I wanna, I'm going to exert host privilege for a second and say this. Like, I think something we need to be particularly aware of and, and that we don't necessarily talk about all too much is like, you know, it's not just a, a megacorp, you know, looking at, well, how did this one over here work? The people who are working on these are the people who are making indie immersive 
are the like like Stranger Things is made by people who make indie immersive, who make some of these Comic Con experiential pop ups, and who even work on theme park stuff, right? So it, exactly. it is this this cadre of creators, uh, some of whose work we've talked about on the show as independent pieces of work. So it is it is not an accident. It is it is not just you know some someone is you know shoving impressions of immersive into some AI and, you know, creating the ultimate branded experience, they are hiring the folks who, who have come up doing this and who have invented the, the field, if you will. So I just want, I just want to be, us to be absolutely clear on this. And then uh, Leah it makes Kevin. all the difference. You can, it all absolutely makes all the difference. Yeah. So the sense that I got in stranger things was that, um, this was an experience that was built for the fans. This was not built for generic people. This is for people who really knew and loved the show. You could absolutely enjoy it if you didn't know anything about it, but it was for the kind of the kind of people who would who would enjoy Stranger Things. I'm really curious if um, p- those of you who, who've seen some other Fever and, and Netflix uh, experiential events like Bridgerton, was it the same for that? Um, like, did you just feel like this was something that was really, really keeping the audience in 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 mind intimately? I Laura, will say that, you. well, yeah, I'll say I don't like Bridgerton. I've seen a couple of episodes. <laughs> uh, I'm not a fan of the show. Um, I just couldn't get into it. So I'm not, and I, and I loved the experience. Stranger Things, huge fan of the show, loved the experience. And so I do think that uh, because the the creative teams and production teams are so skilled, they have such incredible expertise. Uh, I do think that these, I would wager that these do work for huge fans of the show, as well as people who aren't as enmeshed in those worlds. And, and also oh. like, you know, reaching back to like Arcane, which wasn't a fever, but it was a secret cinema you know, riff on a Netflix riot show. Like, you know, I became a big fan of that show, like right before they did the the thing, because they just released it. Like it was out of nowhere. Uh, the, the, the cartoon dropped. And I was just so enamored with how it felt like I was interacting with the characters from the show. Like I almost didn't care about what they were trying to get us to do. And I missed entire part portions of that thing. But getting getting time with Silco, getting time with like all those characters was was worth it, you know. Like it's it was like the ultimate Disneyland trip where it's like I got to interact with all my favorites. Blake, you've been trying to get a word in as well. Edgewise. Oh, what about me, man? Oh, Kevin, 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 and Blake. Kevin and Blake. Right. I did call. I did call Kevin, Kevin's you, turn. Yeah, Kevin, you absolutely go first because I think I'm going to be the doom and gloom. You you continue the party train for a second. <laughs> So right, that this is the party train. It's kind of going to maybe take the, the train in a, a slightly different direction, uh, but related one. So I think some of this too, especially with these these big events and these big brands, is something I think we talk about in these big IPs. Is I feel like it opens up immersive to a wider world, which is always important. And it and no, you mentioned the traveling ones too. That's something that happens in like musical theater and theater productions, but is relatively new to immersive. But it's another way to kind of get this work to people that may not be able to see it. I obviously privilege being here in LA and able to kind of see whatever a lot of stuff comes through here. But I think it is important to the health of the general industry. If 
if more people are to see this, able to see this stuff, and if it's if it's focused on things that they recognize, whether it's Bridgerton or Stranger Things or any of these other things that have these kind of the big backing behind them, but with also the creative heft of the people who have have kind of worked in immersive theater, understand how to shape it to these audiences. I think that's that's something important and something I think to consider, especially if if we all want to see immersive grow. That that's probably going to be a part of it, um, and having that kind of those people creating those kinds of things is, is an interesting way that we're going to see it grow. Staying on this for a second and thinking specifically about stranger things, right? You know, this is the on ice model, right? You know, it is Disney on ice, but it's stranger things on ice, but instead of being on ice, it's essentially a theme park attraction, a dark ride, uh, except the ride vehicle is your feet. I think I've said that on the podcast before, and you're you're going through this thing, and uh, it, it churns people through. And then when it drops you out, it drops you out into like the Starcourt Mall. And what what someone was telling me recently was like some people stick around in that mall for like two hours afterwards. The dwell time. Oh, I, I did. I did. Yeah, yeah. The dwell time in that space can be really intense. And there's food to be had and arcade games to be played. And there's a whole like QR code, like mystery that you can unlock. And there's char- there's ambient characters. And so people are hanging out in there. And that also, you know, makes the experience from a ticket price standpoint seem even more valuable. And the fact that that is, you know, in, in the Bay Area, it's going to be in Atlanta. I think it's destined for Chicago. I think they're going to get down to Mexico City at some point. It might be also part of the plan. Don't quote me on that. Sorry if I'm blowing up people's spots. Uh, but some things are obvious, right? Where, wherever Netflix like has like a big, you know, uh, viewership, which is everywhere. And that's sort of their thing is like their audience is everywhere and they want to reach out to where their audience is. And they're very open about that. I mean, I think Greg Lombardo was saying that on the podcast uh, not too long ago. It's And the fact that they're working at such a, you know, it, it's not the hyper intimacy of you know, a willows. It's not the intensity of attention. It's not the, the, the high artistry of the burnt city. Right. But like, we also, sometimes we go to the fast casual joint. Sometimes we go to like the gastro pub. Sometimes we do fine dining. Sometimes we eat at McDonald's. Well, well, not all that often, but you know, uh, Chipotle there. Sometimes we go to Chipotle. That's fast casual. Anyway, you know what I'm trying to say? Uh, (laughs) like Taco Bell there. I admit it. Taco um immersive is starting to have that as well and that excites me in terms of the the long-term sustainability i also just want to say one quick thing about stranger things was was the audience um when i went super impressive incredibly diverse audience across all of the different metrics and people were so engaged and uh, i really think that when we're going to get into some of these deeper discussions and like, Blake, I want to hear actually what your doom and gloom perspective is. But I also think that this was appealing to, I think there's kind of a, um, how do I want to phrase this? Like there's sort of this inverse perspective. I think sometimes when something is so thoughtfully crafted and the intentionality is very, very specific, 
I get this sense that there's a concern that, oh, but that won't appeal to enough people. And I actually really think the inverse is true. I think when there, and I know we might get into some of these more like kitchen sink productions, I think when they're trying to do too much, it winds up not appealing very much to anyone. It winds up being kind of that, you know, lukewarm sensation. And in this case, it really seemed, I kept checking in during the initial 45 minutes on rail section. I kept looking around to see, and everyone was so engaged. So I think that concerns that creators or production teams might have around that kind of specificity and that kind of thoughtfulness, I, I think you, you gain engagement in spades. I, I agree. And I also agree. I want to hear what Blake has to say, but Laura, I think that's one of the lessons learned from 2022. The things that were the productions that were trying to do too much for too many people and hit the widest possible audience. You know what? That's not, it's not particularly thoughtful and it didn't do particularly well. Yeah, exactly. So in full agreement with all thoughts at the table, uh, I give you the immortal words of Isabella Rossellini. Now, a warning. <laughs> Licensure <laughs> terrifies me. Uh, well, I think that all of these productions have effectively leveraged their pro- properties for both enthusiasts and for non-enthusiasts alike. You know, Laura, as someone who doesn't like Bridgerton, Noah, as someone who was not, at the time you were buying a ticket, amped for Arcane. There is something kind of dangerous and precarious to me about this emphasis on licensure. And while I understand for right now it is sort of the necessary proposition to make this marketable, that puts it at the whims of corporate licensure control. It puts it at the whims of current profitability. It puts it at the whims of what the current state of the market is, especially at the end of this year, as we've all started to see the streaming bubbles start to fall apart, as we have started to see the restructuring at Disney right now, I I almost worry that Immersive is riding the coattails at this very moment, and in this very grand sort of big-ticket fever activation-y way, It's riding the coattails of the current trends in the entertainment market, and those current trends seem incredibly financially precarious. I really vividly remember the ARG bubble of like the late 2000s, super early 2010s, when companies were willing to invest massive amounts of money um, in these sort of boondoggles that at the end of the day might have made a little bit of profit if it got some buy-in, but mainly were serving as marketing vehicles. I don't know the profitability structure of all of these activations in terms of profit sharing with and expense sharing with the licensors. I don't necessarily have a lot of faith in that profitability structure, especially as Stranger Things, you know, as the major example. There is a There is a licensed entity that I think is starting to reach the end of its shelf life. 
And I say this as someone who kind of likes Stranger Things. I kind of see its star on The Descendant. And so I kind of so see take- the star of Netflix on The Descendant as a whole. And I'm just getting worried. Will there be a lot of good immersive people who lose their jobs and a lot of good audience who lose their taste should this bubble burst? So, so I know Kevin wants to jump in in a second here because I opened up his mic. I want to I want to point out a couple of things that 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 I've got from like you know the back channel. One, uh, particularly because the knowledge that they're opening up another line, uh, you know, here in, in North America, Stranger Things seems to be making money. Uh, that experience, and there is there is the the fact that you know it's also doing something interesting, particularly for Netflix as a company, which is it's keeping that you know, story world, that IP, hate to say that IP, but it's keeping that IP alive in between those gigantic gaps between seasons. And it's, it's been clear for a while that Netflix in particular sees this experiential stuff as another line of business for them, particularly in a world where subscriber stuff gets, gets difficult and dodgy. And maybe even, and here's a speculative part on my part, maybe even something that has the same dynamics as Universal Studios does for Universal, as Disneyland and World has for Disney, except not tied to owning property and instead being stuff that they take out into the world, again, like Disney does with Disney on Ice. Obviously, as this part of our world gets more attached to the studio system, to the big entertainment companies, any kind of pullback and spending from those entities is going to kind of hit the wave and 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 slow down the number of projects that are greenlit. But I think we're in a definitely different place from where we were during the ARG boom because with very few exceptions, those were pure marketing efforts and they were looking for um, you know, eyeballs. They were looking for impressions only. There was no, there was no money coming in, and you had, you know, famously, secretly, some of the biggest, most overfunded ones had like eight people playing them. You know, like like just ridiculous amounts of money being spent, uh, and and it even feels different from what was happening at Comic Con a few years ago when, like, you know, the the price per person going through some of those activations was ridiculously high, but they were happy to do it for the social media impressions. But now that they know that they can also charge people for the right to go through these things and people will do it, has sort of changed changed the structure in the game. I think we might be in a stronger position than, than you might and, otherwise think. And it, it could all go swimmingly. I, I completely agree with you here. And I do see that they are turning a profit per per viewer. You know, it's unlike the Comic-Con a couple years ago, unlike things like the Leap Year Society, we are not paying per impression. The the one caveat to that, though, I'd say is that we've also seen a change in funding structure within the film industry. There's a far less people who are going to be satisfied with even, say, a moderate $30 million budget. It's why we're seeing the investment patterns that we are, because it's a waste of time if there isn't a chance at at least $100 million. And so I am I am concerned, maybe out of ignorance, about the scalability there and where we're going to see the investment patterns shift once all the numbers shake out about exactly how profitable this is. Is this free marketing? 
Is this going to be considered a waste of time? I just see a very volatile entertainment industry right now, and I'm nervous because I love this stuff. I got into, like, this world on the back of activations. The first thing I covered for No Presidium was an activation. So trust me, I am all for this. I enjoy living in these, again, hating to say IP story worlds, but it's it's a little spooky. It feels like we might be putting a lot of eggs in one basket, and that's all I'm saying. I, you know, I, I don't necessarily that, it's, feel it's like, like. Oh, hold on, Kevin, <laughs> Kevin, Kevin opened up earlier. Go for it. Yeah, so I don't necessarily feel like we are putting all the eggs in one basket. I think there's a lot of of talk about these things because they have a lot of marketing dollars and because they are traveling and we like people have heard about them. But I, there's certainly thriving scenes in LA, even if there's less shows or it's like shows I've seen before, kind of stuff I wasn't like super interested in. So I don't know that it's like chewing up all of the the immersive real estate into these. IP activation type things. And even if it is to some sense, I feel like a lot of the sense I get from kind of following people in LA is they it's almost like a one for you, one for me thing. Um, I think we've seen people kind of like step into the system, kind of do something with a lot of money and then go make something cool on their own and kind of switch back and forth. There's been a lot of that where the creators are getting experience on the big money driven shows and then kind of going off to do their own work and kind of flowing between the two systems. So even if even if it does collapse, and I don't know that it that it would, I think that these people have a lot of experience kind of in those things to kind of like now step back and kind of reevaluate the landscape and how do they move forward. Absolutely. Yeah, like, yeah and I'll, but, I'll point out like 40, 40 watts from nowhere, right? You know, like Andy, you know, was working on Star Cruiser. Andy was working, you know, on some stuff for uh, C, you know, Cedar Point. Um, and 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 you know bringing things around like you know great america and like cedar fair sorry cedar fair um and and then also doing doing 40 watts so like there we we see that switching we see the switching someone like david ruzica right you know it's like yeah i'm absolutely thinking about yeah like mr mischief and then like jfi i think you see a lot of those kind of back and forth between these like bigger and smaller things and and there is definitely that vibrant indie scene and that ability to have one foot in both worlds um again all my concerns aren't with the creative class it's more with audiences and the moneyed class here Uh, laura perhaps you could speak to this phenomena even in installation art i i almost feel like there's been a little bit of a recoil among audiences lately after the sort of immersive van gogh bubble burst that there is difficulty re-establishing audience investment when there are these boom and bust cycles? I mean, I think I see it differently. Um, and I, uh, it's not like I've got some amazing dossier of metrics and pull quotes and all sorts of stuff. But I, I think what we've, what we've been seeing concurrently with everything that we're talking about is there, there still is this increasing demand by audiences for experiences. We've had this trend now for several years of people wanting experiences over just material objects. I think the pandemic emphasized that. Um, I think that everything that we've already talked about, I think the iteration, the low overhead with a lot of these remote productions, those cracked open other geographical markets, you know, uh, I think 
this entire group with the exception of Leah did the, um, uh, did an escape room in Japan virtually. We did that. So I think, um, I think, you know, it's worth saying, I mean, I hate being the person who I feel like is often saying this, but, um, we're, we're essentially living through a mass disability event. Um, I think that creators need to continue looking at digital offerings, digital productions, because there will be more and more audiences that cannot physically get out to productions, uh, to different shows. So I think all, you know, all of that in the mix, which is some really heavy stuff um, or some really, uh, you know, just intense elements. My take on the projection art, those immersive experiences, which those do vary. I did a couple of the Van Gogh experiences. Personally, my take with those is that I think they're a a great gateway drug. Uh, I think that, yes, the quality varies. And yes, we should continue to strive to improve those and to make those as uh, you know, as cohesive, as resonant as possible. Some of those also went to markets that are not the major markets. And back to Kevin's point about introducing people to immersive and creating these welcoming on-ramps. So I think the backlash, I think there definitely has been some backlash. Uh, I think Blake is right to cite that. That being said, I get really bristly around a lot of the kind of whatever feels to me like the gatekeeping. You know, there's people in the art world that think that Meow Wolf isn't really art. I'm just not interested in those conversations because I don't really think that they serve the industry and I don't think that they serve audiences. So I think similar to all the iteration that we're talking about digitally during the pandemic, I think that the in-person the projected art shows, I think they're also going through some of that. And there's some growing pains there and there's some iteration. And I think they're looking to see how that works. There's going to be a new uh, David Hockney immersive show. And I'll be interested since that will be the first one with a living artist. So I'll be curious to see how is that different? Like what does that add where there's contemporary collaboration, does it feel too similar to the ones with these deceased artists? Um, So I think there's just a lot of, I think there's a lot of grace and space that we started giving to people during the pandemic. And I hope that continues. Well, I think when it comes to some of these, you know, uh, projected visual shows, Right. Like they're, they're doing one type of work, something like moment factory, which might play around with some of those same tools and then a whole nother kit of tools, uh, like they're doing with their Astro Lumina show or their, or their, their Lumina Nightwalk series, which is all over the world. And some of them are permanent installations. Like there's a permanent installation in, in the Toronto zoo, for instance, it's been there since 2019. <laughs> they're, they're using some of the same kit, but creating things that are, incredibly compelling the 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 projection mapping that's in a different meow wolves right you know like the the projected imagery in some of those spaces they are uh, absolutely breathtaking and 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 moving uh, i think what we what we what we're going to see and and we also know that you know some things i think like it was the 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 king tut one kind of like came and went without anyone kind of really noticing 
um, you know, there, there's, they're trying to dial this, this format in, but I don't think those particular things have, have fully exhausted what they could be yet. And yeah. the good news is there's some real examples of what it could be that it's already extant. Uh, and the bar, you know, the, the first time you do any of this stuff often is like, oh, wow, you can do this. And then you go back a second time. And if it doesn't push the bar forward, you know, you just go, oh, I guess this is all it is. We saw that with the void, right? You know, you go into the void the first time and whatever one you did, Ghostbusters, Star Wars, Wreck-It Ralph, you came back around and you're like, oh, they just reskinned this. I'm in the this room now, you know, um, you know, I'm, I'm doing the same thing, but in a, in a slightly different order. And, you know, we saw what happened to the void. Uh, there was other things going on there, but that, that was enough to kind of wrap on them. Uh, and this is going to be the real test. That's the eye of the needle uh, that the, um, you know, that all of the projection based shows have to pass through is what are you going to do now that you've established the ground rules? How are you going to push it forward and how are you going to make it more and more compelling experiences in those spaces? Uh, I want to bounce it back to Leah because Leah had, had opened up her mic uh, when we had a, <laughs> one, of those, one of those crosstalk tussles there. Uh, where'd yeah. you want to I really wish you'd forgotten because I was, I was just going to agree with um, oh. all the things that Kevin ended up saying better than I was going to say. It's all good, but it's my job to remember who wanted to talk. So that's that's, yeah. that's part of part of the game here. Um, but now that I, Leah, now that I have you, since you've sort of you know dropped this thesis to us, this this uh, you know your word is thoughtful and sort of this this shift. What are what are you kind of seeing in the threads that everyone's kind of laid out here? Uh, gosh, I'm just I'm sitting back and thinking about how smart y'all are. Um, it's it's a pleasure to hear all of your various no, perspectives. I'm, gonna cut this part. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm sorry, it's it's true. Um, I, I I'm appreciating where everyone's coming from, Blake. I also feel a lot of your anxiety around working with IPs, um, but I, I think that Kevin's correct about uh, the the one for me, one for you model that's happening where, where it's really just allowing for a lot more interesting uh indie art happening uh laura i, I agree about uh wanting to have as many on roads into immersive as possible um anyways let's see am i seeing anything else that you guys haven't touched on yet um we we spoke a little bit a, a few minutes ago about thoughtfulness from the audience perspective as well and I think this is a bit of a double-edged sword. I I think that as immersive enters the, the mainstream, has entered the mainstream in all the ways that it has, um, we as an audience and as a public are starting to gain a, a fluency in what works for us uh, and what we like as audience members uh, and what we want to see more of. And it means that we can all be a little bit more thoughtful about the shows that we're seeing but as as producers and and writers get a little cannier and know more about their audience and as as we know more about what we want i think it's going to start creating a, a very there's a possibility where i think we move forward and a lot there's less experimentation there's um more 
building what is already successful. Um, I don't know. Maybe yeah. I'm not actually too worried about this, but I think I think a little bit of, of what I'm feeling this year is, is a bit of a mourning. I, I miss things like Eschaton. Um, I miss the flops. I, I miss the adventure of like when things could go really poorly or really well, and you'd just be completely delighted all the time. So, oh, I, so, I, th- I think I think we're in one of those those moments though where, and I'm kind of happy to see that there will be another round of people getting you know, wildly creative and responding to the work that's out there and trying a different track or picking up a thread that they left behind. But something that I often see artists across all kinds of disciplines do is abandon their successes so that they can go chase that thing that eluded them. And this year, from what I'm both seen and what I've been able to sort of observe at a distance is I see a lot of people kind of coming back and interrogating what made their work work and try to iterate on that, which I feel is what separates out the one hit wonders from the Taylor Swift's of the world. But Blake, go ahead. So I actually was going to come trying to alleviate some of those fears of yours, Leah, from the opposite angle, which is that I think immersive theater is one of these uniquely suited mediums for outsider art and wild experimentation. And I don't think it's going to lose its appeal there. Well, we're still seeing, I, I think maybe we're stuck in the headspace because we are talking about these very fun, admittedly, but perhaps a little bit homogenous, large-budget road shows. You know, there are shows like at the Philly Fringe Festival this year, Rising from a Thousand Thrones, which was this very strange Cthulhu, Cthulhu mythos meets literary history exploration of the career of Mary Shelley. And it was fairly incomprehensible. It was done in the house of someone that the cast knew, which was an old house, admittedly, but still had all of its 80s renovations. So, you know, you're having these Mary Shelley scenes by the ensuite jacuzzi, and it was sort of one of these bombastic, thrilling, sloppy shows that I I almost was worried we were going to leave behind us. And I think so long as there are people who have a story they want to tell, immersive theater is just as easy a medium as anything to tell that story. We have companies like Candle House doing remote theater. We have companies like Forgotten Lore Theater in Philly doing shows just in a house. I saw a show in a diner parking lot. I didn't enjoy it, but you can (laughs) do that. And we, we, we saw we see a bunch of companies in Denver stepping up and, and doing work. We see folks experimenting with playable theater works out in Seattle. And then on top of all that, there's all of the colleges that are their designed, you know, their design sectors and their theater sectors and their media departments are starting to explore this spaces. So you've got stuff going on in Lincoln, Nebraska, and in Austin, and in Mesa, Arizona, and here in Los Angeles. And, you know, uh, someone someone at Juggernaut is now working in a major position at Yale. Uh, the, the, the next generation is brewing in spots that we don't have correspondence in, in, in a real way. 
would now be an appropriate time for me to put a call out to Providence. Come on, come on, Providence. Let's let's get with it. Let's let's do some more stuff, guys. It's it's never an inappropriate time to chide the folks who are who are local to you uh, and get them doing more. Speaking of which, uh, the next segment, if memory serves, we're going to have Shelley on, which means we get to talk about what's going on in London, uh, which I know a lot of uh, a couple of you got to go check out and see, and and we all know London is just bubbling at a fever pitch right now. Uh, both with these big branded things with stuff that are like knockoffs of the big branded stuff and with entirely original pieces all at once. And and we should be so lucky to see, you know, something like London happen here in the States. London also has the best theme bar and restaurant scene in the world. And I urge you to interrogate Shelley on that because, oh my God, is there some fun stuff going on over there? Oh, we will. We will definitely get into that. All right. Well, I promised you guys we wouldn't go much longer than than 45, and we've hit 45 right now. So did did anyone want to hop in? Was there anything, something about this year? Let's let, I'll, I'll go down the list. Leah, um, you know, we've, we, we ran with yours, uh, a big theme. Let me pop in. Laura, is there, is there something, some little button on 2022 you want to, you want to, an observation I'm springing this on everyone in real time, by the way. Uh, is, is there like a little observation you want to share with everybody uh, to take take home with them this year? Well, I, I think that where our conversation has taken us, I think my sort of call out, which is not a new call out on my part, um, but I think to echo some of the concerns that we've highlighted during this conversation, we have seen some incredible independent and or digital productions. And I want to see those continue. Things like We Should Meet in Air, things like I Agree to the Terms. These are smaller productions that pack a really serious punch. The Tell Library is still running, one of our favorites. I really hope that this kind of one-for-one model that I think Kevin is right to cite I hope that audiences continue to find and support and champion those productions because I do think those create a virtuous cycle into feeding into like this creative pipeline that goes up to these more tentpole productions that we're talking about. I think it's so good for audiences and for the industry alike. Blake, any any observation we didn't touch on that you want to have everyone take away with them? I think that I want to highlight what I highlight every year, which is just because we all love thoughtful art and we all love branded art. I hope immersive and I believe immersive will continue to have wild unbridled fun art. I think that we will continue to see zany experiences we couldn't possibly dream of and couldn't possibly see coming, and we are going to be laughing and screaming and just as addicted as we are today, tomorrow. Kevin, how about you? Yes, you mentioned things like kind of feeling inventive even now, and I think, I have to keep talking about 40 Watts from Nowhere, but that was one that I think was really interesting because it it plays with very familiar like immersive tropes and, and methods, but in a way that I haven't seen another show do anything like that. So I think I'm 
I'm hopeful for more of that work that kind of like you can use these these tools in the immersive tool belt or bucket or whatever to kind of look at things in a different way and come at them from a different angle and make something that like I wouldn't have expected to have like been so hyped on and it was just really cool and and it's one of those ones where it's like it that's another thing where it's easy to get people into immersive theater where it's like hey you get to be a dj for 45 minutes and it's awesome like and you also get like a little like story about someone's life in la and it's cool i want to see more people playing with that leah coming back around to you any any anything we didn't touch on that you want to you want to give the button here on no no, we, we, we've covered everything. No, no, I'm just kidding. Um, we have solved immersive. Hey, you got it. Hit the button. Did it. Did it. Let's Did go. It. Shut it down. Shut it down. Uh, Done. Don't need another segment. Sorry, Shelly. Sorry, Patrick. Sorry, Parker. Who's going to be on the show for the first time. I'm afraid your segment's been canceled. So way to go, Leah. Ruining Parker's debut. Uh, yeah, happy to help. No, you know what? I'm just, I'm excited as I am every year. I'm excited to see what happens next. I'm looking forward to being surprised. Um, I'm, I'm already anticipating the show that is going to blow my mind that I can't even begin to, to imagine right now. So, you know, here, here's to a, a new and exciting 2023. Nailed right. acquaintance. Oh no, no, not doing that. No, no, it's not the end of the show, so we're not we're not doing that. So, all right. On that note, me shutting down that one. Um, we're gonna take a quick break and be back with the rest of the team. Kind of as promised here in segment two, we have Shelly Snyder coming in from uh, London, although she's actually in the States while we're recording this. Hi, Shelly. Hello, hello. And Patrick McLean, who is our Chicago curator. Hey, everyone. Always happy to be here. Uh, not able to join us right now is Parker Sella, the associate producer of the show. Uh, sorry, everybody. I think I mentioned that in the first segment. Uh, and if I didn't, then uh, I'll cut this part because it'll be awkward. Um <laughs> Okay, so uh, we're recording this uh, a week after segment one. So my recollection of that conversation is going to be a little hazy. Um, but what I wanted to do was maybe touch on a, a few of the big themes that we hit uh, and, and get y'all's take on it. And a thing that was brewing up at the end of it was sort of this idea that we'd check in with Shelley about London. Because over here in the States, we've had this year where... In some of the places, like, say, like L.A., there hasn't been a lot of shows, but there have been some pretty good shows. There have been uh, what we, you know, Leah was referring to as thoughtful immersive. Uh, there's, there's, a, there's a, a caliber and a quality of work that seems to be going on that feels to us a little bit in reaction to kind of the free-for-all that was 2020 into 2021. And... I know from the outside looking in, uh, London's just popping off and maybe in a very different moment. So, Shelly, I, I figured we'd start with you and then Patrick, because you cover a lot of our remote stuff and a lot of our VR stuff. I kind of want to I want to ask a similar question uh, to you to, to kick us off. But this really is just a conversation. So, you know, feel free once we've each had a bit of peace uh, to just. Uh, fall all over each other and just talk over and <laughs> will do and, fantastic yeah. 
Yeah, let's get into a scrum. So, but Shelly, is this is the perception I've got here of like London's kind of popping off, but it's also a little bit of anything goes. Is that well? Is that I wrong? have I have a crazy conspiracy theory, and this comes oh because born okay. out of being an American and knowing uh, the American healthcare scene versus mm-hmm. uh, living and working in London. We are going um, right there right well, away. No, is this no, going to no, make me really sad? No, is this going to fight really about sad. politics? No. Well, it's going to make you wish perhaps that the U.S. Uh, responded the way that the U.K. did, because part of my day job was actually being on the front end or the, the the planning end of COVID regulations in the UK. And so what we had at the time was government supplied free lateral flow tests. Everyone had access to them all the time. There was a government regulated um, submission website that you know you could get a free test and you'd take it and you'd submit your results and that way you'd get a text or a, an app response where you could show that you had tested within the last 24 hours and that you were negative. So all of this helped to reinforce public confidence in safety. So because of that, it became a lot easier to regulate audiences coming in and out of shows. You know, obviously the industry was able to respond Oh, I caught COVID. I need to reschedule my dates. Okay, no problem. We'll, you know, submit proof of your positive test and we'll reschedule your dates and vice versa. I definitely don't have COVID. Let's put on a show. And so because of that, I feel that even though right now the UK's money is on fire and our economy is in open free fall. You guys still have money? We're very no. poor. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, we're, we're bartering in like tea bags and biscuits. Okay, actual cool. pounds. Yeah. That's what <laughs> yeah. your currency actual is. Pounds. Actually, yeah. 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 Pound of things. pound, pound of what? Sorry. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Pound of flour, please. Powdered yeah. eggs. Yeah. But yeah. so while we don't have a ton of money to throw around at the moment, at least our entertainment industry was more robust, uh, quicker, and so we were able to welcome you know large audiences back a lot sooner than I think people felt comfortable doing in the U.S. So that's my crazy conspiracy theory is because the government paid for all this testing. And also, I know Noah, you and I have talked about this previously, the Arts Council funding. There's more money for the arts and for audiences to go and see it. And so London's just like, all right, well, you know, we tried to do the VR and the the remote thing. Uh, It worked well, it needed to, but we don't actually have to keep doing that. And so we're going to go back to in-person events. So let me let me ask this about the audiences because I think this is a, a big factor of it. Because um, mm-hmm. here in the states, it's it sort of you know we're we're very fractious right now, you know, uh, politically. Sorry, folks, we're going there. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, <laughs> the thing I don't do on the show, just because I do it in the rest of my life constantly. Is just, if anyone wonders why, it's like why is no one <laughs> going on politics all the time? It's like you should hear the Star Wars podcast I listen to. Like we're we're fully talking about like anarchy, you know, and not anarchy in like a whoa anarchy, but in like a let's talk about mutual aid. You know, it's like ooh Kryptovkin. Um, so uh, like is is Saw Gerrera a, a classic anarchist? Anyway, um, so uh, that's me, but I don't inflict that on you all. Um, but so we're very fractious at the moment. We're very fra- we're very fractious right now, and 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 whether or not one believes in COVID um, uh, is is a is a cultural marker, a political marker, and is something that you know just just getting everyone to get back to masking while we've got these like what we call a triple demic uh, because we've got mm. 
COVID flu and this thing called RSV, which no one had ever yep. heard of, uh, is is running around. And there isn't a single person, you know, I got COVID, you know, this year, mm-hmm. um, yep. not too long ago. I had it for Christmas uh, last year. Yeah. Like it's running around in, in at full stream. And uh, increasingly, everyone's been a little bit of YOLO because, um, you know, even when you're someone who like, you know, knows all the math and whatnot, and you're very used to like going around in a mask. Like I, last night I went to a cocktail party thing that was on a back patio that was like a, a kind of covered back patio, right? Like there was, there was, it was Mm -hmm. heavily ventilated, but it was still kind of like, you know, like a warm smoker's lounge type scenario. Uh, I kept my mask on. were people weird? I uh, know I was the only I was the only person masked out on the back patio. There was no one masked inside the co- inside the bar. Uh, mm. No one. No one was weird because it was like a friend group of mine. Uh, so everyone was fine. Uh, and I did take the mask down a couple of times to like, you know, sip the the cocktail that, you know, I bought in order to like justify my being at this bar. Or whatever, <laughs> this event. Um, sure. Which which normally I would have like just drank the cocktail and not be like, oh, I'm going to take it off once. You know, and, and like I took a bite mm-hmm. here and there. But you know, doing the doing the the higher threshold thing because I just got you know I, I just I got just got done being sick. I don't want to be sick again. I got got a little bit of time mm-hmm. off coming up, and I, I don't want to. No, no, I'm gonna have a freaking <laughs> vacation. I'm I'm gonna be able to go you know see movies and not you know have to be laid up in bed yeah. like f that. Um. So, but I'm saying all that because uh, I don't know what the attitude is. The attitude in London YOLO or or is everyone kind of riding together, right? Because <laughs> because the thing is, is like there are people who are there's some people who are like still in full mask lockdown. There's some people who yep. like aren't doing social stuff. There's a I think there's yep. a lot of shows here that aren't getting people going to them because those those companies' core audiences are being more mm-hmm. cautious. And then there's other people who are just like, oh, whatever, live one again, YOLO. <laughs> And and going to see stuff three four times, and everyone everyone's in a different spot, and no one knows how to calibrate. Is everyone on the same page in London, or is it the same kind of like everyone's all over the place? I would say that London has moved to a place where most people are not wearing masks anymore in any uh, in any arrangement. Not in stores, not at work, not at shows. Uh, every show, however, is still. Every activity is still advising people, you know, we encourage you to wear a mask if you're concerned about transmission. I will say that every show is very conscious of needing to be accessible to people who choose to wear masks. So Mm. that one... How does that manifest? How does that manifest? I would say it manifests like um, they can't force you to take your mask off for uh, interactive opportunities. They can't force you to take your mask off for eating and drinking. Um, They make more, I would say, the larger, more experienced production companies leave space so that they're not overcrowding audiences in. The more emerging groups, the more sophomore groups, maybe aren't being as careful about squeezing people into small spaces and that's just because that's it's winter and there's cold and flu and there's also covid and there's also rsv going around i will say this is the open season but there are still people who choose to wear masks and we we be accessible to them 
But with your comments earlier in regards to testing being readily available, and that was then, is that still the case now? No. Great question, Patrick. Um, (laughs) They ended uh, the free testing materials because we could not keep it up forever. It was costing a ton of money. People were getting um, COVID malaise uh, and just tired of it. It became harder and harder to enforce. I can definitely tell you from a customer service perspective, people were quitting in droves just because everyone was an asshole. Pardon my French. So the government have to put that E on the podcast now. (laughs) Sorry, (laughs) I can go (laughs) lower. Fuck it. (laughs) (laughs) Pop fucking cherry. We're going. We're on. So the government ended free testing materials and that free testing website. I think back in April or May of 2022. And while there are cheap privately sourced materials, there is now no longer any way of enforcing testing apart from providing tests for your audiences and forcing them to take them in the lobby of your event and show the result to an arbiter exactly and no one's doing that so yeah yeah i mean that's that's like i mean that's one of those things that is socially awkward because it's not a norm and like yeah there's 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 so many there's so many opportunities for us to like dial this in properly i guess can you not get free tests uh, without that whole like reporting structure but can you not Mm -hmm. get a free test from the nih uh, the NHS, um, NHS, not yeah, yeah. not anymore. That's okay. It used to be. So that was the free testing oh. materials that were offered all the way up until yeah. April or May, and then that's when they were like, okay, we've been supplying these for eighteen months. Uh, oh, wow. We have we can't keep paying for this, and well, now I, the numbers. I have, have something down. amazing to tell you. Then, like, and, and Patrick and I, Patrick, Patrick, you and I, we we can be like really excited because like, um, uh, the United States, we we just released. Uh, free tests again to everybody like through the postal service yes so uh if you have if you don't know if you're listening to this you're listening to this maybe as early as wednesday of this week because we're at least this early and uh this this last week was when they put it out there and according to the mail i got this morning uh i i expect my test to arrive on on Wednesday. So while you're listening to this, I'm going to be hoarding tests. Um, so go, go, go to the postal you're service. The problem. Yeah. I'm, I'm the problem. It's me. Um, if, if you, God, what's the, uh, Oh, I can't, unfortunately I don't have it here, but uh, I'll put it in the, I'll try to remember to put it in the show notes. I probably won't because I'm recording days later. Um, but those free tests. Well, I wonder. The postal service, right? Yeah. And I wonder, Shelley, is it because the situation now London finds itself in what we're talking about is because in a way, with all of the government support that occurred, that there was a way to YOLO safely, that there was an expectation that the community did come together and they got on the same page and there was a process and order. And that's maybe a little more ingrained in everyone's life, whether they know it or not, which still allows these experiences to continue where, to Noah's point here in the US, things have kind of come and gone very quickly or been small or have to be on the really big scale. I'm wondering if just setting the bar accordingly, not saying right or wrong, Mm -hmm. earlier and sooner made a difference today. Strap in because you just reminded me of something that I omitted earlier. Uh, and the early okay. days. So you know how, maybe you don't know. Um, so we have sick pay over here. Uh, most jobs who, where you have a contracted job, um, you are, you can take off days to be sick. You're not using up your annual leave vacation days 
uh, you can actually just stay home and be sick and get over it. But now that doesn't exactly exist for self-employed people or people on the lowest end of the service jobs. Mm. Now we've seen before in the States, obviously, that if somebody uh, says, if I don't work, I don't get paid. Therefore, I'm going to go into work when I'm sick because Mm -hmm. I have to pay the rent this month. You know, that Mm. was a real issue. Guess what? Over here, if you were self-employed, I say over here, I mean in London, uh, in the UK, if you were self-employed and you caught COVID, the government gave home payments so that you could afford to stay home and be sick at home. So with that safety net built in for people to be able to say, you know what? Yeah, it's not as much money as I would have made if I went in, but it's enough to put food on the shelf and, you know, to order it and have it delivered and to stay Mm -hmm. home and be sick at home. You know, I don't have to worry about losing my house. And so with that in place, it gave audiences the confidence to be like, you know what, rather than fail to go out and engage in entertainment, you know, rather than staying home on the couch to keep make sure that I'm well enough to work, I could actually afford to go out and enjoy the arts a little bit more than maybe I would have if I didn't have that net. Yeah, that security. That that's mm-hmm. okay. I mean, there's the, the, this something something we don't often talk about when we you know, and I get performative about the arts council stuff. I'm like, whoa, whoa, whoa. but like <laughs> the other side of it is like, yeah, there's there's a bit more of a social safety net, and that you know, so that that safety net for the artists, uh, the safety net for the patrons also mm-hmm. impacts. You know, uh, it's a virtuous circle, right? You know, maybe mm-hmm. the the artists don't have to charge as much. Maybe the folks who, you know, don't have to be as rich to go to stuff and there could be more. It works on both sides of the equation. Like, so you can actually mm-hmm. have, you know, culture and, and not just commerce. Um, mm. Here's the wild yeah. thing about pricing over here. Mm. You would be hard pressed to get an audience to pay more than about 35 pounds a ticket. So about the equivalent of maybe 50 bucks for a mm. ticket. Most shows are not priced beyond that. And it's because shows are you know, you'll have funding, you'll have backers versus here in the U S where, you know, a good immersive show starts at maybe $85 and goes up 70, from there. 70, 70. 70. Yeah. yeah. 70, so, 70 is sort of the floor right now. Right. But audiences in, at least in London and in the UK, like they'll see a ticket for 35 and think, mm, do you really think you're that good? Cause I can get, you know, day tickets to any West end show for 25. Yeah. And well, and, and punch shrunk though, what they're like, what a hundred quid? So, well, what, so Punch Drunk. Are we if we're talking about Burnt City? When they opened City. their their lowest tier ticket was about fifty five, and that was early, early, early bird tickets. Oh wow! Now it's about uh, to get in. They were charging about eighty five pounds per person. Wow! But and when the exchange rate was great, there, gosh, no. <laughs> yeah. Well, but interestingly, now that they've had about eight months of excellent run and their name is out there and they can see that it's a sustainable show or maybe to get more bodies in the door, they've started dropping ticket prices. Uh, mm. There are you can get day tickets now, I think, for like 35. There's a lottery for 25. There's uh, buy one full price, get a friend in free kind of deals. Interesting. I so mean, there's two ways more accessible. Yeah. I mean, there's, there's two, there's two ways of looking at that. Like, I mean, sometimes when shows are doing that, it can be a sign of like, Oh God, they're, they're, they're a little, that's very true. Right. And then there's also, there's another way frame where if the show's financials have been worked out just right, 
then you go, oh, that's the actual that's the actual cost. You know, like they're getting they're getting they're getting people in. They're covering costs. They're getting like a little bit of profit, um, you know, mm-hmm. because they've got the capacity to 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 do so. Um, and and you know, day tickets being you know uh, a a real thing. Um, I mean, from uh, what's kind of funny right now is like there's plenty of stuff that's really good that and is getting good word of mouth, but is still like struggling to sell tickets. And that's the thing that's mm. kind of driving everybody here a little a little batty is that if something isn't a big piece of ip then it 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 isn't currently struggles sustainable yeah which is of course you know i mean obviously very frustrating um Mm. but there's there's so many changes to the ecosystem and you know these things are kind of you know they're jenga towers so if we can just find the right (laughs) brick to move like the blockage will you know fall apart mm-hmm. and then we can you know move on to the next level and figure out the next puzzle um so so what what is the vibe over there we talked a lot about the covid side of it but like to get back to the kind of the broader question um and i think the covid talk was my fault um to get back <laughs> to the broader question gee i wonder why it was on my mind um <laughs> uh, uh what yeah like d- is this like a Cambrian explosion? <laughs> like uh, it, it really does from the outside feel like there's a little bit of, you know, roaring, roaring twenties over there. I will say the same thing to you now that I said to you in 2016, when I first came over here and took a look around, uh, mm. there is so much immersive going on in London. It just, there's always stuff and you know we don't go to every show to review it so there's little shows mushrooming up all over the place we've got things like the vault festival which is where a lot of emerging artists come and try out uh dip their toe into it and see you know shows like the great gatsby started at the vault festival and then were so successful that they uh set up a permanent position in london and i think they came over to new york um, we've got shows like Alice's mm. Adventures Underground that started at the Vault Festival and then ended up going to, I think, Shanghai. And now they're coming uh-huh. back. So London is, you know, if you want to call it that, it's it's a roaring explosion that's sort of been going on. It's almost like, what's that town? Centralia, where it's been burning for a hundred years. I do not know. <laughs> and this every now point. and again. Oh, yo, you'd love it. It's this town out in Pennsylvania that's got a coal mine underneath and a fire. Oh, started. That, one. that one. Yeah. The hundred, the hundred year, the century fire. The hundred, right. Yeah. The century fire. So yeah. yeah, that's what London is. It's at least in the six years that I've been there, there's always something going on. And it might just be that there, it was quiet in the U.S. for a couple of years. And so the only news coming out in immersive was coming from London. It feels like, oh my God, there's this big explosion. No, they've just been doing it this whole time. Well, I have a question, Shelley, because from my thousand foot perspective in regards mm-hmm. to the London scene, having never um, before or during the current status of the pandemic have been over there. So I really don't, I, you're, everything you write is my understanding of the scene. It does feel like this last year, so correct me if I'm wrong or point it out, is that there seems to be a lot of emphasis on audience play or audience agency in regards to a lot of the experiences you've been reviewing and some of the other uh, correspondence we have there that you are uh, like the burnt city in particular, because a lot of the, uh, um, some 
Leah and Blake, I know, went overseas and saw it. And mm-hmm. you just are in a space and you, you know, get to walk around. Like that's the classic punch drunk model. I know mm-hmm. that. But there seem to be a lot of those experiences in London right now where you don't necessarily have to go from room to room. You're not on a dark ride or you don't have to reassemble at key points and things like that. There seems to be an emphasis on play. And have I been reading too much into that? Uh, The majority of the experiences that I've been to are sort of a room to room open, not necessarily an open sandbox, but the kind of shows that you go see where you're sort of stuck in one room and Mm -hmm. there's nothing new to do after that initial discovery. uh, Those don't tend to stick out in my mind. (laughs) I would say that the highest quality shows in London are very much you you go into a a compound basically and you go from space to space and experience the story that way that seems to be what the market wants to do here it seems to be what makes the most money we saw it with um Doctor Who Time Fracture we saw it we see it with Burnt City we see it with uh, I love Swamp Motels the Drop that was great um you see it with Great Gatsby. You see it with the parabolic shows and particularly the collab shows. So so it, it's more about there is so there's it's about like exploration in the sense of like really trying to manipulate space and having space to feel it's like more this, set this based. Being yeah. Do you yeah. mean like in comparison to what you tend to cover, which is like remotes and uh xr sure absolutely but i would say Mm -hmm. in regards to even some of the in-person stuff i I, i've done over the years uh locally and around it definitely feels like you're in a confined space i think maybe that's what i'm what i'm extrapolating from this conversation Mm -hmm. that america is still stuck in renting out one space one room that may or may not could be broken into smaller rooms, but you know that could be by curtain or whatever. And you're pretty much in this little confined space going quickly and there's no exploration. There's no movement in a sense of like journey or distance. Oh yeah. I would definitely say a strong, strong difference between the two. Cause the, all yeah. the most of the, the good shows that we go to are very much, there is a journey from, spot a to and it might be you know you've got a central area and there's uh, spaces that open uh, along sort of a a clock face where you go out and discover new spaces as the show progresses Uh, or it's a dark ride you know processional from one you know a to b to c to d but but those are big a b c d right like it's not like tiny little i mean i would say so some are some are huge (laughs) like punch drunk um some are smaller like uh the basement of a warehouse which is what like doctor who time fracture was which was a journey but was also very large some are uh swamp motel bought out the whole ground floor of a store and somehow constructed it into they basically they gutted the whole space and then built it into what looks like a storefront. And then you go through uh, an elevator and then you go through a trap door in the back of the elevator and you go into a perfume shop in the back and then you go out on the streets and to a hotel and. Uh, wow. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's what that's I'm talking about. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I mean, think about it this way, you know, London is a city. 
but it's also a very dense city. So the streets are much smaller. Uh, The whole town is a rabbit warren. So it's easier to travel from place to place rather than say, you know, if you were in New York, which we love New York, but the, the buildings are bigger. The streets are wider. There's not necessarily a lot of parking. You can't necessarily rely on public transportation. So you have to have parking for your guests. I think it's harder to build wide in towns that aren't London, if that makes sense. Yeah, it's sure. Power difficult. to the person who's driving in New York. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. For a second there, I thought, Nicole, I think you may have conflated parts of New York and Los Angeles. You've been in London a really long time. <laughs> you're like, oh, you can't rely on public transportation in New York. I mean, yeah, the subway was shut down, but like, you're thinking of Los Angeles. What public oh, transportation? Sorry. Uh, you know, you're I mean, right. Yes, you got metro's me there. here, but like, do you really want to? Mini Metro is great or was great, but it's falling apart. Uh, I don't mm. know. I do have a car because I'm in Los Angeles. <laughs> I'm <not laughs> um, but actually, this is this this is an idle question that came up. And this becomes like all like ask Shelley questions about London segments. Um, <laughs> I only asked like Patrick and you guys more questions. It's not. Just oh, let's be keep her on the show. grill. Yeah. Well, yeah, let's let's <laughs> I got one more thing. I want this to assuage my curiosity here and let everyone know. So you were talking about you know it's a denser city, smaller streets, yada. Uh, does all the immersive stuff sort of happen in the same zone? Is there the equivalent of the, okay, no, it's spread out. (laughs) It's spread out. Yeah. It's, it's great. Well, you know, London is, uh, spreads across the, the coast, like a migraine. Um, there are, London is, uh, dozens and dozens of villages and mini cities that sort of got sucked into the, the underground system. So mm. things like Punch Drunk is now based in Woolwich, which is on out to the east. You've got things like the West End, which is really in central London. You've got Croydon, which Ironic. has some productions. I know. <laughs> <laughs> uh, so no, like the immersive shows pop up all over the place. Well, you don't tend to see. So like the Vault Festival is in central zone one London. It's um, underneath Waterloo Station right. uh, on Leak Street, which is really, really cool. But most immersive shows can't really afford central London rent. So they'll they'll tend to pop up anywhere from zone two to zone four. You'd be hard so, pressed. So still to, a sprawl. Still a sprawl. Still a it's sprawl. Like, like it, yes. Like in New York, you know. Exactly. Uh, you're not going to see that Ch- many immersive shows. Yeah. yeah you're not like, going to see a ton of them in Manhattan. You're going to go out right. to like, you know, Queens, the Bronx. Yeah. Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, for a long time, you know, uh, you know, Sleep No More was in Chelsea, and mm-hmm. um, uh, what part of where was then? She the, fell. Then she fell was in Brooklyn. I'm trying to think of the exact neighborhood in Brooklyn yeah. it was in, or the part of, but like, but it was out in know, Brooklyn. It, yeah, like it wasn't, and and then and then Grand Paradise was even farther. It was like you know, yeah, a couple of more, like even deeper out into Brooklyn, right? So like mm-hmm. that that Same trip thing. I went where I caught all three of them, you know, like. It, it was a trek, you know, it's, it's, you know, you, you, aside from like this timing issues, like there's no, there's almost no way you could like capture them both yeah. in one night. Um, but yeah, just like things, things just all over the map and just like, you know, depending mm-hmm. on where you decide to stay, you're like, oh, you're 45 minutes, you're an hour out. And here in Los Angeles, same thing. It's funny. Cause I've had conversations with people about, that's actually really funny to me. Cause there was a conversation I had uh, last year with someone who just asserted that, and I'm only sharing this now because I think we just disproved it. 
uh, but it's something that's mm-hmm. been bugging me for like over a year. Uh, this is someone, uh, and they're 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 like an exec in the studio system, and they were saying that immersive was never going to happen in Los Angeles the way it happens in New York and London because oh. we don't have public transportation and because things are far too spread out and we don't have a central district uh, for theater hmm. and whatnot. And what you just told me and my knowledge of how that that you know two pole system in New York worked between then she fell and mm-hmm. sleep no more says to me, yeah, no. No, it doesn't like, uh-huh. like, well, and, and, and right I, now, right now, the stranger things experience here in Los Angeles, that sucker is like a 40 minute drive out of central Los mm-hmm. Angeles. It's well, riddle out. me this Batman. Uh, so, mm-hmm. th- you know, as we know, uh, you dastardly fiend, what have you done to Robin? <laughs> right. Uh, <laughs> As we know, um, ticket sales in the U.S. uh, tend to be more expensive than they are in the U.K. Uh, Now, my theory was it's because of Arts Council funding and backers and all that. But I do know that in the U.K., a lot of shows rely on their alcohol sales, on their bar sales to to supplement their income. Now, yeah, but uh, if we are closing our eyes Mm. to the idea of driving under the influence, I imagine that it's harder to have a robust booze and bar sale if everyone has to drive to your show. And so yes, I, don't know, I mean so think... so so that, that it's it's a great observation. Um one like single cocktail prices here are getting <laughs> stupid. And like I say <laughs> this as someone as someone who was introduced to the idea of like the $12 cocktail like in the in the in the actual aughts and was taken back a little bit and then tasted one and was like oh no that's reasonable and now have, <laughs> i just had a conversation with someone the other day about how there was like a tw- like a 25 dollar mezcal cocktail at something they went to and we were like get oh, ben what I'm not paying uh, that. unacceptable under any circumstance Oh yeah, no. Really. Like, is it just, served to me by a Chippendales dancer who comes home with me well, afterwards? Because because what it because it because apparently <laughs> top shelf mezcal right now is like really freaking expensive. Like so the funny thing is, right is we now. were talking about that and like there was a, there was a bar menu in front of us. We were at brunch and we noticed that like the most because we were like, oh, well, what are the drinks here? Right, you know, and like the top drink was eighteen dollars, and we're like, oh, oh, this looks like it's got some top shelf stuff in it. But then like hmm. further down, there was like. The two ounce pour version of this one mezcal cocktail was $36 for the two ounce pour. But that's yeah. the thing. It's like it's like someone taking deciding to make an old fashioned with like Pappy Van Winkle or something, you know, and he's like, oh, oh yeah. I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to I'm going to take the most expensive, you know, thing I've bottle I've got because it's a bar and like I'm going to put it in a cocktail. So I'm going to charge you, you know, up the wazoo. But going to make a cheeseburger so, out of Wagyu beef. Just when oh, you thought God. brunch was worse enough. I know. Hey, shut up. I like brunch. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, come the revolution, meal. you're going to be first against the wall. Yeah, you I guess have, so. You can have lunch and you can have breakfast. Like, I don't mean like, you know, like, the, one. like, let's go brunching. You know, like it's, it's not about, it's, for me, it's about the actual food. I don't care about the people. I mean, the people I'm with, yes. But like, it's a perfect meal. It's a perfect meal. Um, So like... One, so one, you can get one cocktail into the driver, which is, you know, not that's true. I'm going to say, and, and you've charged them $20 for that. Uh, and then, and then a lot of it's like, okay, who's, who's in their party? 
right? You know, like, are you going as a group? And I think something like, you know, the Stranger Things experience um, here, what I've, so what I've been told is that, um, you know, the dwell time in the after zone, which is the Starcourt Mall setup, mm-hmm. like people are staying as much as two hours in there. And wow. there's like a QR code thing to chase around. But like what it is, is like, there's some, there's some, you know, atmospheric performers, there's some merch to look at, there's food but if you a want it. Bar. There's bird. Yeah, it's a themed, it's a themed, it's like a themed shopping mall, is what it is. Cause there's like mm-hmm. a little bit of everything. And yes, there's booze and there's food. And and the the there's there's even scoops ahoy, right? So like everyone kind of hits all the stations. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a food court you hit all the stations for. And yeah, I think the cocktails are like 17 or something like that. You know, they're charging carnival prices, as it were. And you know, that show is great to go with a group of people. So if you've got someone DD'd, mm. then maybe your party uh-huh. has, everyone in your party has two drinks. Um, and so that's like 30, 40 bucks from each of those people on top of yeah. the, you know, what, 50, 60 they spent. So now, and maybe they buy some food. So their night out, a per, a, an individual person, particularly if they take some swag, someone could drop $150, $200 on their own there. Yeah. And it's a group but of five. To Shelley's so that point, of like a thousand people, a thousand. People. Yeah, but to Shelley's point, I think no, that's a really great example. Is that that's someplace where the drinking and conversational aspect before or after the experience has been inherently built in. Where I think what Shelley's talking about is so many experiences either just front load it at the beginning, so you arrive early and just make a few bucks. Or maybe mm. if you know you know someone between shows, you can have a drink afterwards. But they don't want you to stick around; they got to keep you going because it's a very small space or whatever, and things like that. So I think, yeah, I mean, that's, I think that's a good that's, point, that's... though. Like if something like the Stranger Things experience, and if it's out in LA where everyone has to drive, they sort of have you as a captive audience. It's sort of like um, the Secret Cinema thing, where you know you you can't yeah. just go for the show; you go for uh drinks and the show and dinner and more drinks Uh you don't really have an option to leave whereas in like you know in london you know oh i don't feel like staying here and paying you know 10 bucks or 15 pounds or whatever for a cocktail Uh, we'll literally just leave and we'll go around the corner to a pub and i'll pay you know six pounds for a pint instead of staying here i mean I mean, that's one of the interesting things about a thing we don't see in la all that often take notes creators is people Doing their Captive stuff out audiences. in the hinterlands. Yeah, doing their stuff out in the hinterlands. I mean, that's the thing. To go out of that Stranger Things experience, it's 40 minutes away. I mean, I, I looked around. There's there's like nothing around there. I mean, there are wow. technically things, but it's mostly like, you know, I wound up I wound up getting something at the Carl's Jr. drive-thru, and Carl's Jr. is way too expensive. And I'm like, oh, good <laughs> Lord. You know, I don't what an interesting there. concept, though, the idea of the inherent duty of care. Where if you're going to build an amazing production that's like two hours or whatever out in the middle of nowhere that takes an hour to get to and an hour to get back to from a major city center, that's a four-hour commitment. You almost mm-hmm. have to offer people food and you know drink and repast simply because there's no other options for them. Who the hell's going to come yeah. up there if they can't get food? Well, that's you the spend, situation you spend here four in hours Chicago. Avatar and you just- <laughs> Go for it. Yeah, Go for it, like finally, let Patrick. Yeah, no, 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 Forty like, minutes, and we're gonna let Patrick have his turn. <laughs> oh, thanks, guys. No, but I was just gonna say in regards to it. That's the same. I, 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 in this moment, I'm like, I'm pretty sure every experience I've seen in Chicago, I've been Shelley to your point, able to just walk down the street 
or go mm-hmm. within the block to experience it. Like in here in Chicago, of course, there are residential neighborhoods you can walk through and there's a bar smack in the middle. And that's it. That's the only thing, um, you know, that's for the winter, cold winter purposes and things like that. But I think, you know, for a lot of the Eastern cities, like that's like, you know, off the Atlantic and all that, it's a very commonality between like New York, Chicago, uh, Pittsburgh, but then London and some of those is that, this it, culturally, those cities have always been engaging in a multitude of spaces to go to. So I think mm-hmm. also in regards to what you were talking about earlier is that like the competition for where to spend your dollars is so constant and present all the time, mm-hmm. especially if you've decided to walk there. Yeah, very good point. Yeah. Very good observation. So Patrick, let's let's pivot into you. Um, and, and the irony being, I think this segment's going to be longer uh, than the than the, the one with more people. <laughs> Tough oh, that's no like we, it's good. I know. Yeah. No, I'm I'm a blast. Uh, oh, we're solving problems. Like I think we're 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 dialing in on something. But uh, talk to us about. Uh, talk to us. You know, you've gotten to see a couple of things in Chicago, but you've also you're on you're on a remote beat. So like, how how has this year been from your Angle yeah, what like post 2020 and 2021, I would love to learn more about like the remote beat and what the trends are. Well, yeah, and I've alluded to this, I think, in the, you know, pick of the week segment we did where we kind of just gave the highlights and then in the reviews. But I think the real success of the remote year was pivoting back and thinking of original ways to do content or engage with audiences. I think there's... um so many experiences that are thinking about the space in new ways or the medium they're in. Um, the pick of the one of my picks was the Light in the Mist, which was a, a functional tarot card deck that is all about puzzles and new things and stuff like that. But then I also know I think about Demio and how they that all of Resolutions games have built like these spaces for their players in an online yeah. world. That is vibrant and active. I'm, Noah, have you gone onto the Discord for Demio yet? I haven't gone on the Discord for Demio, but I was going to ask you: Did you see that Resolution is doing like table tennis? Yes, and but and then all of those games also have a place where you can like sit and relax afterwards, yeah, or like and and connect with other people. Like the whole thing seems to be like a tennis table tennis club. So it's like, yeah, it, it, it's implying in the sizzle reel, and who knows if it's real that that kind of that there's going to be like pick up and play. Where you could just be like, oh, hey, you want to go play some table tennis? Like, yeah, let's go play some table tennis. Um, well, that's what I'm saying with the Discord because that's what's happening in the Demio Discord is that people will drop room codes. I mean, like, hey, I want to do the rat room. Um, maybe I even have some personal modifications like don't use this player or we're not going to use these cards to make it a little more challenging. And from what I can tell, people are joining those pickup games. People are hopping into it. Like they have found a space to connect. And I think, I think that what's really cool is that a big lesson that I think we struggled with early in the pandemic with remote experiences that, you know, for better or worse, we were focused on zoom. And I think in the moment for that first year, maybe even year and a half zoom Mm. was a blessing. It was helpful. It was good, but I think only work within that realm because they were first off the mark. And so everyone was like, oh, that's the standard. We have to work to Zoom. Well, it's also, the I think, truly the easiest one to use, even though it's not mm. robust. But it, it's it, 
I'm on, I'm on Microsoft Teams for my day job. And only just now, like within the last two months, have we had the ability to hide ourselves. So for three years <laughs> now, I've had to stare at myself in the bottom right-hand corner of every call. Um, and I, <laughs> I hate it. I hated it so much. Where Zoom had a lot of that functionality up front. But to, to this kind of conversation of like the bar space or a place to chill and chat and have drinks with your friends... I feel like a lot of experiences have really remote XR. A lot of them have been thoughtful about engaging and keeping the community active in some way, which I think is so important. I think that's why a lot of the, we've seen a decrease in Zoom-based shows of late because there's, unless you're maybe, unless you signed up for the email blast or you're someone who is, you know, actively maybe in a more remote environment that does not have a lot of immersive experiences, you know, you're out there hunting for it. But I feel like without a, a hub, without a place that is not a social medium, a social media platform, because we can't trust those to stick around for much longer, <laughs> clearly, yeah. that yeah. it's so important to do that. So like, rather than the show ending when it ends a way to keep your audience and keep repeat people is to put in the effort and set up that digital hub. Well, it's, right. it's funny. Like everybody everywhere is constantly talking about like, how do we keep this momentum going? How do we keep, how do we keep uh, talking, you know, in between like these temple events or between the shows or between like conferences or between whatever. And then people try and build a platform and no one uses it. Right. Or like people say like, Oh, come over to a discord. And like, you know, four people come over to the discord and, mm. and the, the truth, the truth is, I mean, I'm even talking about our discord, right. You know, yeah, tell um, us how you and, really and, feel. And, <laughs> what? Tell us how yeah, you really well, feel. Well, and 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 I and I know part of it's like I'm part of the problem with the Discord is like I'm not in there like constantly like blathering, right? You know, right. um, but like, but but like, because every time I do, then like no one says anything. It's like, well, why am I here? I'll get more reaction on Mastodon or something like that, which I'm actually doing really good on right now. Um, and and the the truth is is that you kind of need part of the problem is you know like Facebook and Twitter and and the big social media platforms like. They have they have long filled that role in people's lives. So when people are, uh -huh. or you look at like for business side, you look at LinkedIn, right? You know, like uh -huh. people people be having like a, a pat yourself on the back party on LinkedIn every day. I mean, and 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 LinkedIn's very good at telling you like, oh, hey, these people have shared your stuff. Go comment and like that they shared your stuff, right? Because that'll uh -huh. get more engagement. That's it, literally the algorithm is saying like, oh. If you please me, I shall spread you. And you're like, oh, okay, algorithm, I'll do what you want. He's like, oh, thank you. Now buy Game Pass, you know, because it's owned by Microsoft. And um, and then I buy Game Pass. But um, I didn't know that. Yeah, LinkedIn is a Microsoft product. Well, learn something new every day. Yeah. Didn't, didn't you get the Teams memo about it? Uh, so. <laughs> Did they airdrop it into your roster? They don't airdrop. They don't uh, airdrop. That's Apple. Build. That's Apple. Oh, yeah. excuse me. I uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I use I use mostly Mac stuff. Um, but, but they uh, would be doing it if that went over better than it did. Oh, yeah. yeah but yeah. then there's stuff like um, there was an experience we were tracking um, – in regards to possibly being an online ARG called hollow medium, um, which ultimately did, you know, has a bunch of components and things like that. And is has an audio track and all this stuff, 
But at the beginning, they were putting out these like puzzles to build up to it. And they were very accessible puzzles in that, you know, if you just took a little extra time, you know, was willing to Google and things like that, you could solve the puzzle in regards to that. But it was all in regards to like building to the release of this experience of what hollow medium was going to be. And I think in the online space, unfortunately for better or worse to that LinkedIn problem to the discord problem, you drop it in there. uh, Hey, I'm doing this thing right now or this weekend come. And if you haven't pleased the algorithm, it, you know, you're just a wash in the sea. Into the void. Yeah. Yeah. So I think it's really interesting how a lot of companies have started little shouting. They've, they've, they've been doing little posts, little things, little teasers, little stuff like that to build to it. So when they announce that we are going to release this thing, we're going to drop this deal, it is now in regards to, like, there's a buildup. There's a, there's a, there's a marketing campaign, you know, essentially, yeah, you, you, right? That's yeah, what it is. Yeah, and you, and you need that. I mean, the thing we talk about, you know, I, I had an extensive conversation with a, with a creator the other day, uh, you know, both about their show and I was thinking about sort of Los Angeles as a whole, like, you know, how, or just like the immersive field as a whole, what do we do to like build out the audience? And there's, there's certain things that are kind of stacked against us. The algorithm stacked against us. Uh-huh. Um, you know, Facebook still wants you to boost your posts. They want you to spend money just to show to the audience you've already built. Like in so many ways, that's the, that's, that's the core evil that's happened in the past 10 years was that when they switched to, when Facebook switched to an algorithmically based feed, suddenly they wanted you to spend money to talk to the people who already wanted to hear you. And Uh it's just, it's just evil. I will say it. It's evil because (laughs) it's it's them. Yeah. Well, it's also, you did the work of building an audience. You used it. Yes. You used their platform. You could have used Mm -hmm. another platform. You Mm -hmm. did the work of building an audience. That audience consented. The audience decided they wanted to to listen to you. And then that platform was like, ah, but if Mm -hmm. you, if you really want them to hear you pay me $10, whereas Mm -hmm. in email, like an email thing, and we have a really good open rate on our email. We have like a 51 Mm -hmm. to like 54% open rate on email, which when I tell people that they go like, what? That's insane. Like no one gets like, like those percentages are huge. And I'm like, oh, uh-huh. cool. I don't have any other re- point of reference, but like, thank you. But we have a really engaged audience with our, with uh-huh. the email, which is exciting. Um, and, and, and that's, that's, that's tried and true. And if mm. social media worked that way, where if you, and, and in some ways, Right. Like what's happening right now is Twitter's falling apart and people are shifting to Mastodon and you know, some of these other things and maybe something's going to catch like, like Mastodon's not algorithmically done, but Mastodon also, that means it is, it is pure real time. So if someone's following a whole lot of people and you mm-hmm. put something out, not at prime time, then mm-hmm. uh, you might as well have not said anything. And the only good well, thing about the algorithm. Well, I'm getting flashbacks to 2011 when we were using things like Hootsuite to time posts so that they would come oh, out. We still do. We still do. Oh, do we? Oh, we how far still, removed I am do. from that. Yeah. No. 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 We still. We still do that. There's still optimal times, but then the algorithm also will like. The algorithm 
first there's optimal time and oh god i mean (laughs) basically what it means is that if something does well in that initial push then the algorithm goes like oh people seem to like this i'm going to show this to more people later right the irony being that like you know like on sunday i opened up facebook and four hours after the world cup final i was getting sean taylor's uh play-by-play posts about it's like that goal was insane and and i was and and no one had engaged that and i was like gotta love the algorithm i actually commented because i was like four hours later you know it gets coming through (laughs) number one post i see yeah right but like yeah it's 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 definitely it's a it's a funky it's a funky uh thing we're in right now um, and there's a chance that like, you know, over the weekend, cause a bunch of people decided to start leaving Twitter again. Like last night I was getting so many notifications of people starting to follow the no pro account on Mastodon, which I just started like on Friday or something. And huh. so like, you know, like it, we're not, we don't even have a hundred yet, but like, we'll probably, ha- we might, we'll probably have a hundred by the time this goes out. Right. And mind mm-hmm. you, we have like 5,000 on Twitter, right? Like it's, it's a huge mm-hmm. loss to have that going away. Um, uh, even if it doesn't drive a lot of clicks, it definitely drives a lot of awareness. And yeah. but we're we're entering into a mode for everybody of like, how do we connect with audiences? How do we keep that connection persistent? How do we build? And a lot of it comes down to how do we build community? And building community is different from networking. It's different from marketing. Uh, but you can do networking and marketing within a community. But there is a tolerance point, right? Like if if it's a pure if all you're doing is constantly marketing at people, if you're not there authentically, right. you're not, really you're not there engaging, folks, interacting, yeah. giving them a the, chance to notice me, senpai, that kind yeah, of thing. Or, or or just being being human, you know, like like being human mm-hmm. out on main. Um you think you think of the people who do a great job of that out in like the, the other side of things, right? Like I think of James Gunn and he's he's a natural on social media always has something you know got in trouble for it for a while there uh because like you know always had like a i mean look this is a guy who like wrote you know for lloyd kaufman like the guy who created like toxic avenger right you know like hmm. he, he's got he's a he's a sicko he's a sicko in in a happy way right you know like the meme sicko right you know um black black, and, black comedy Oh God! Like, just like, absolutely. And also, like, you know, mixed with a lot of childlike wonder, and that can really get you into trouble, right? You know. But like, he's he's definitely matured into, um, you know, a studio head now, right? Oh it's like what he's doing, and he's like, you know, you see him like online, and like he's authentically engaging with everybody, and not in the sense of like, you know, oh, some social media told him to authentically engage. He's just, you know, he's like, no, I'm I'm a fan of. It's like people are like, oh, is Batman going to be a big part of the DCU? It's like. Yes, <laughs> it's like it's Batman. <laughs> like, what, without saying, like, what kind of dumb question is that? He's our biggest <laughs> character. Like, no, yeah. there'll be no Batman in the Super Friends movie. I'm gonna make. <laughs> God, right? But, but well, the point but, is, is that like he's right. he, he he's out there. He's not just doing that. Those back and forths. He's also being completely, you know, a, a completely human person. Uh, he's, and engaging he's, regularly he, with the fan base. He, yeah, he's just being himself. He's just uh-huh. being himself on yeah. on the social, and he might have a conversation about something that has nothing to do with his job, right? Mm. And you don't see uh, when when I don't see people on social media 
doing anything but talk about their job or talk about or social promote something or promote something yeah. I, yeah. I i have no desire like uh, my favorite thing actually is to follow say comic book creators like writers and artists because mm-hmm. they love the medium so much i mean like if you're active in the like particularly if you're a really tall and comic book artist you could be doing anything <laughs> but you chose comics, <laughs> right? Like you, you, you have to have the love of the game in a real way because these are the best illustrators in the world and they're doing this work um, uh, because they want cultural impact and, and they love it so much. And it'll be fun to say, like watch them uh, just fall in love with another artist or get hyped about something aesthetically or like over the weekend, like Steve yeah. Lieber, who's an amazing artist. Like he, he, bought a butter cutter and was like very excited about what it was going to do for his biscuits <laughs> and like had two amazing photographs of a butter cutter and the biscuits. And I was like, ah, you know? And so it's just like that, like being in the aesthetics of life. And mm. when, when you see folks doing that, um, and, and I'm, and I'm, and I'm odd. It makes like, you, you wish know, I, that it was more for like our industry where if you can't be there in person for every production, the way to stay engaged with your favorite creators is in this this digital hub yeah but well, also and, like but and, and and oh go for it patrick well and i would say in regards to that i think what helps with it being a person is that and i think a success that has really happened with remote and xr and vr experiences this year is that thanks to the height of the pandemic we've gotten in such a, a I think everyone's uh, out the normal audience right out there, the people we want to bring into immersive are much more inclined and are much more smarter and know how to find non-traditional experiences now. And I think I, mm. I was just in target the other day doing the last of the Christmas shopping um, and to see so many like, boxed mystery experiences uh like clue now has their own version of like you know instead of the traditional just like paste a new ip over it they're using their internal property to create a you know like mystery box who killed mr body thing and i think Mm. what's been really wonderful and in regards to what you're both talking about about community and all of that is that i think everyone's interests have expanded and they're more open to it because I also look at and the benefit of being delayed by a week in regards to having this conversation compared to being back to back with the others is I was really excited to see how many non-traditional immersive experiences were on the list. And by what I mean, yeah. that is, is something that maybe didn't have a live performer or was over the phone or was a box experience by itself. And I feel like previous to the pandemic, all of us in our cities typically found ourselves to just be covering that beat of physical life performance. Yeah. And now I see us all covering a great many different things in many mediums. And that makes mm. me very excited for us and both the industry and the potential audiences that will find those connections. Yeah. I, I think something I want to see us do more of in in the in the year ahead is is lean even more into the box stuff and the the there's there's some more xr performance things that are starting to happen and uh-huh. more more vr and part of that you know to reverse what i was just saying mm-hmm. part of that is like a slightly cynical ploy to try and like reach out to audiences 
who are interested in that stuff who aren't necessarily interested in the live immersive. And part of it's because Mm -hmm. the live immersive is getting a little more rarefied. It's still happening, but like you're getting, we're getting more sort of like IP driven big shows that are say coming out of like the Netflix Mm -hmm. and fever shop. And and we'll see some of that coming out of, I think secret cinema, you know, today ticks and, and you know uh, there's, there's some, I think someone just split off from secret cinema. We know that Arkham is still, like I know for a fact Arkham is still being worked it's on. Coming. Like Arkham's Arkham, yeah. And I got I got Someday. an update from behind the scenes at someone. I, I got an update that like things are moving forward. Uh, got which, it. Uh, Ooh, inside scoop. Yeah, no, like this just in. Yeah, like asylum built in the middle of London. Nothing can go wrong. So, yeah. So we're we're going to see more of that you know, type of, uh, of work happening. But I think this, you know, I, I struggled a bit, um, you know, when I put immortality on the best of list, which is the, the half mermaid, you know, San Barlow's company game, because there's, there's a, there's an argument to be made that it shouldn't be on an immersive list that we shouldn't have, um, reviewed it in the first place because it's a fully self-contained, experience it is a screen experience you use controller or keyboard and mouse or or in the case of like the mobile version your touch screen and you don't you don't hop off the platform it's not transmedia uh none of that stuff is there but Mm. you think about an escape room in a box uh particularly one that doesn't use video components say um you know that's all in one medium and yet we we'd cover that there's Uh Uh there's a quality of the storytelling there is a matter of who are you in this world that's being made like are Uh you controlling a character that already exists like like um yeah as a counterexample um, you know, uh, the upcoming Jedi survivor. Like, yeah, go ahead. I'll go for it. Oh yeah, like no. like Cal Kestis is a character, and it's played by an actor, and all and all of that stuff is you know baked in and done, right? And you're just mm-hmm. you're just manipulating the character, you know, around the thing, as opposed to when you're in immortality, you're you, or when you're in a LARP scenario, you know, you are fully mm-hmm. the character, right? Like and how is a multi, yeah, and how's how is that like an online multiplayer different from an in-person LARP? Is there truly a difference other than you're in front of a screen? But like the functionality, the setup, the intention. I mean, there's 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 an argument to be made that like we we could legitimately if someone if someone came to us and pitched. In a world where we had a budget, we don't have a budget, right? Someone came to us <laughs> let's and pretend like, we if, did. If, if, if okay, let's pretend we did. Like, what, what would have happened if I'd won that billion dollar lotto? Okay, so the kind of thing, the kind of thing that I would green light is someone could walk up and say, "Hey, I want to do a feature on Grand Theft Auto's role playing servers. Like, I want to mm-hmm. do, I want to go in and, and, uh-huh. and role play for a month in Grand Theft Auto Online, uh, because it's yeah, it. I think it's a a screen LARP." And I would say, go for it. I'll pay mm-hmm. for that. I'll buy that. I'll pay mm-hmm. you our rate to go do that. 
because I think there's something, um, it is, it is on the spectrum. It is, there is continuity between that kind of play and star cruiser, that kind of play and Uh the night in question, the, the vampire LARP, uh, that happens down in Austin once a year, uh, the boutique, Mm. that kind of play and, um, the, the ministry of peculiarities, right? Like there's, Mm. they're, they're in conversation with each other. They're informing each other and we want to be part of that conversation. Um, the, the, the hard lines around what is and isn't immersive is less interesting to me than what are the things that are feeding into the river that makes great immersive. And that's one of the reasons why immortality is in the mix because it's in conversation with ARGs. It's in conversation with like solo role-playing, you know, experiences. Uh, Mm. It's, it's, it's in there. It's the sort of inroad uh, that uh, maybe someone who hasn't approached immersive theater because it seems completely inaccessible to them, the sort of thing that would introduce them to the concept and be like, oh, there's many more paths away from this and I could stay in here or I can wander off into other realms. Yeah. Like a little bit of that or like, you know, like if you liked immortality, you'd probably like an escape game. If you liked immortality, you may very well like a Darren Lynn Bowsman show, right? Like, cause it's, it's got uh-huh. some weirdo crap in it, right? You know, if you liked immortality, um, I say weirdo crap with love and affection. Like <laughs> Something hinky's like going weird, on here spooky, and I'm way into it. Weird, Crazy weird, stuff, weird, yes. weird psychosexual weirdness, you know, like with yeah. like the air of menace, right? You know, and it's like. <laughs> Sign you know, me up. Li- yeah, yeah, right? I mean, like, hi. <laughs> Mark me down as scared and horny. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, we're going to throw like a V it. in front of that. that well, folks, that was today. the 2022. No, uh, no. Um, <laughs> Uh, it's good. You're like Shelly's other... never invited back on the year that was ever again, dude. Yeah, I, I just want to turn that podcast appointment. The, the other, the I'm gonna call it right now. The other squad is so jealous of how loose we are. <laughs> <laughs> like they really are. We had the the, the conversation after the the credit the the mic stopped rolling. Everyone was like, oh, "I wish we had recorded that." Yeah, no, we've got that vibe right now. Sorry, y'all. Um, yeah, but like, um, it, it's it's. Yeah, like this this stuff it's it's all it's all of a piece. I think I think yeah, like some someone might find it or a creator might learn something, right? I think there are things that creators can look at immortality uh and 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 I couldn't tell you exactly what it is. It's like, "Oh, it's this here." But there's something about that that I feel that someone's going to look at. And this is true for a lot of Sam Barlow stuff. I mean, like I know for a fact that like Sam Barlow's games like they've inspired people who work on Star Cruiser, right? You know, like that I know for a fact. Um, you know, maybe not necessarily to create something specifically on Star Cruiser, but they are they are they are some of the things I get most excited about is like the way the the way those narratives are assembled. Uh, this non it's a non-linear way of telling a story. And this one manages to like both have there are linear stories within that experience. And then on top of it, you are also having a non-linear story experience, right? And just thinking mm-hmm. about time and narrative that way, and how could that apply to like a live immersive event? You could do it. You'd have mm-hmm. to tr- you'd have to experiment really hard, but you mm. could do it. 
And, and so that's why, that's another reason why it's like in conversation. And I think our mandate, um, our, our mandate only grows, right? Um, uh-huh. we, we do have a desire to categorize and to direct people and to, and to, to let people know what they're getting into, but that's less about driving people to the thing that they're looking for. Because there is a mentality of like, I like escape games or I like immersive theater and I don't like the other thing. And we're, mm-hmm. and I'm not saying that like, you know, that they're, they're, I'm not talking about like the other publications are that way. It's like, no, right? Like, in fact, our favorite publications, our favorite, you know, folks out in, in, in say the escape game world, like they also, they also love the hinky stuff that we're into. Right. But mm-hmm. like uh-huh. this idea is that we want to help set the expectations of the audience. We want to help them know what they're getting into so that they can fully enjoy or fully engage. Cause maybe you're supposed to be depressed, uh, <laughs> fully engage with the material that they're presented and not be walking in with a set of bad expectations. Yeah. I didn't think there were going to be puzzles in this. I thought there were going to be puzzles in this. I didn't mm. think someone was going to touch me. I didn't think that, you know, people were going to be calling me by my first name, you know, mm-hmm. like, no, you should be able to, to walk talk in or not expecting me to talk or exactly. I didn't know I was going to get yelled at because I started talking, you know, like, yeah, you know, and all those so are recipes some, for disaster. Yeah. Whereas like, if we help everyone like know what game, you know, in, in the metaphorical sense they're playing, then, then they're going to be more readily able to, to let themselves go into the mm. experience, right? And and lose slash find themselves. Very true. No, oh, I got philosophical. <laughs> <sighs> well, we went for an hour and seven. Um any 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 anything that and Patrick we'll start with you because you had the least talk time uh today. <laughs> Um, (laughs) anything that really stands out about this year, um, or, or that you think you're going to be thinking about from this year, um, vis-a-vis immersive as, as we go forward. I think the thing I've been thinking about a lot lately, I think I said, think way too many times in that sentence, um, Mm -hmm. is really being open to messy experiences and what i mean by that is i'm coming at this from a very particular like vr tech um idea in that one of the kind of interesting experiences that i did this year and we we haven't talked about anoa and i i'm gonna butcher the name it's the italian game about you being in the village that the dam is going to break and it's a oh i know which one you mean i can't remember its name too yeah i remember that one yeah V, it's yeah. like V-A-J-O-U-N-T, something like that. And oh, yeah. was it the greatest VR experience of my life? No. Would I readily available, would I recommend it immediately to maybe someone who's completely new to VR or immersive? No. But have I thought about that experience several times this year in regards to having gone in cold and really trying to figure out what they're trying to tell me and what's being asked of me and not 
caring that, you know, facial animation is not top tier because they're not, you know, being they're It's not being produced by Apple or Netflix or meta itself. And I, I've, I've just thought about that experience a lot lately, but like, you know, in regards to, I think it being noted in other publications and things like that, it's flown under the radar, but I, I found it so fascinating. So I think in regards to this, in my thinking of that, we've, gone to all these different mediums and places and immersive is getting wider. It is becoming everything. I think I want to be mindful regarding something that it tries to do something is bold, but might be messy and being okay with that. And maybe even celebrating that occasionally that it might not have worked and it was a little bit of a mess, but at least we tried and thank God we did that. Shelly, how about you? Ooh, that's a really, that's, it's, I was thinking about it in the background. How am I going to come up with something that, that <laughs> deep, that insightful? Sure. Um, mine is sort of, I have the same resolution kind of every year. I see amazing stuff. Um, and I see a wide range of it from all levels of production value. I keep saying the words, you know, um, experienced, emerging, and um, like sophomore productions. And every year I just set out to hope that next year's productions continue to hold the audience as the most important thing. Um, one of the things that I was taught when I was studying is you, we as creators do not get to dictate how the audience will feel. You can't design something to say that, oh, the audience will feel this or the audience will do that. Your audience is is open-ended. It could end anyway. It could start anyway. So I want to see shows that continue to put the audience experience first and foremost over any kind of artistic expression of the creators or the actors. I love, you know, big, beautiful design dances. I love incredible sets. I love incredible sound and smell design. But at the end of the day, if if you're putting on an immersive show, your audience has to have agency and has to have something to do and someone to be in that space. So with London's emerging immersive dining experiences that we've been seeing more of this year. There's a company that's open shows, uh, Midnight Saloon, Avora, and Alcatraz. They own all three. Uh, we're also going to be reviewing uh, Park Row in the new year. We're going to be uh, doing a visit to the Monarch Theater to see the, the Batman DC-themed immersive dining gastro experience. While I'm super excited about these things, I just want to take note and maybe not necessarily caution because I don't have a platform in which to do that, but just say that while we're rushing to break new ground and make cool new things for London uh, and world audiences to come to, let us remember that if we are setting out to make an immersive production, that we need to continue to invite the audience in as players rather than just paychecks. Word. <laughs> all right well we we, we plowed on <laughs> we, we got we, we, we got solved all the problems uh well uh you know I, I i don't know if we solved but i think i think we've left we some certainly talked about all the problems yeah. yeah i think we left some breadcrumbs i really do i think yeah I think bravo to anyone who's happened. listened to the full hour and 15 minutes this has become 
Oh, with within with initial like 45, 50 minutes ahead of it. So this is hour two by the time they're in here. And, and, and what's coming up, what's coming up is is uh, my closing segment. Uh, so uh, even more me, lucky all of you. Uh, that's sarcasm. <laughs> um, is it? Maybe it's both. Um, all right. Uh, as always, an absolute pleasure to talk to both of you. And uh, I'm sure we'll be chatting again uh, soon and also chatting some more as soon as the mic's off. So... <laughs> A pleasure, as always, to join. Yes, thank you both. So before we go for the year, and it's been a long episode, so I'll try and keep this quick. I wanted to answer the question I get the most these days. How is immersive doing? Uh, The most recent time I was asked this was at a gathering here in L.A. this past weekend by someone who used to do work in the scene in the early days, but hasn't been as active since before the start of the pandemic. I begged off going in depth. I wasn't on the clock after all. But when they said that it seemed kind of dead, I countered. Here in L.A., it's just weird. That weirdness applies to other places, too. You know, London is London and has long churned out more work than New York or anywhere else. Yet no matter where you were, we all saw the steady rise in live work before March of 2020. Then came the proliferation of online work once everything went virtual. 2020 and 2021 were our busiest years in terms of coverage. And while we haven't gone and done a full count, I suspect that 2022 wasn't as heavy, even though some of the work that has come up is at a scale far bigger than anything else in years before. A lot of that large-scale work, whether it was being done at theme parks or as part of large IP-driven events, is being produced or was developed by the very same creators who are almost exclusively doing indie work in 2016 through 2018, when the L.A. and New York City indie scenes were really humming. Heck, that's true of the two new Meow Wolves that have opened over the past couple years alone. Five or more years into their careers, and you'd hope that a lot of creators were making it. And a good number are. Even if they might be making it in-house somewhere and not as independent producers. Not at this moment, anyway. What the high pandemic did was hold back the next class of indie immersive creators from launching projects for the better part of two years. A few did, and some of that work, like the Ministry of Peculiarities and Particle Inc., have truly been spectacular. Then there's spots like the Department of Wonder out in Sugarland, Texas, that have great promise, and works like Zotto in Denver, which moved audiences there. So many of these projects had delays because of the pandemic and still face a very different macroeconomic scenario than when they were planned. Yet we know that more audiences than ever are being introduced to immersive in all its forms, from the Stranger Things experiences tours to the escape games rollout in malls across America. It just might be that worldwide, more people have gone to live immersive work than any other year before this one. On the virtual side of things, we still see a lot of innovation. And while there have been hype and bust cycles around Web3 and the metaverse, the actual creative experiences being developed keep getting better. VR makers are coming into their own in the medium. And while AR still struggles to find hits beyond Pokemon Go, the tech side of it is advancing at a steady pace. 
Plus, everyone expects Apple to drop a headset. Any day now. So, I'm looking forward to that next generation of indie makers stepping up. Even as the established creators start to take bigger risks while being backed by serious resources. If one thing is clear, it's that the desire to experience immersive work is only growing and that the challenges creators and fans are facing right now have more to do with the changing landscape of media and the larger economic issues than with any inherent issue with the formats. Our mission, to create a larger audience dialed into immersive for immersive sake, is only getting more intense. I very much look forward to passing some major milestones in 2023. So, how are things in L.A.? In all of the Immersiverse. Brilliant and tough, as always, with our brightest days still ahead of us and with an even bigger pool of wisdom to draw from behind. And on that note, the associate producer of No Persinium is Parker Sella. Music for No Persinium is by Chris Porter of the Speakeasy Society and Solar, the podcast. Special thanks to Siobhan O'Loughlin for voicing our intro. The No Persinium podcast is written, edited, hosted, produced, and mixed by yours truly. I'm Noah Nelson, and until next year, I'll see you at the show.